Welcome to the Whole Council Podcast. I'm John Snyder, and today we have a special guest with us, Jeremy Walker. Uh, glad to have you with us, Jeremy. Hello, John. Glad, glad to be back. Uh, many of you know Jeremy, and Jeremy does a podcast for us called From the Heart of Spurgeon, and he has recently released a new book, and that's this here. It's uh, From the Heart of Spurgeon, Volume 1, 1855, and this is a collection of eight sermons by Spurgeon uh, with Jeremy's introductions, and so we thought it would be nice to have Jeremy visit us on the podcast and just help us to understand uh, the value of Spurgeon for today um, and, uh, you know, in particular, how we might benefit, how we can join in the reading program that he's doing and um, just to kind of stir our hearts by thinking of what the Lord did with a man 200 years ago. So, Jeremy, uh, explain to us the podcast and the book, if you would. Thanks, John. Uh, the podcast and the book really came about as a result of uh, a reading scheme that uh, I suppose in some senses had its origins in a documentary. So if we go back uh, through the eyes of Spurgeon, which is something that Media Gratii distributes, was a biographical documentary on the life and ministry of Spurgeon. And I had the privilege of uh, presenting that. And out of that, which was itself really a reflection of my appreciation for Spurgeon, somebody asked the question, I think more or less tongue-in-cheek, so how long would it take to read through the, the best known of Spurgeon's published pulpit output? So that's something called the New Park Street Pulpit and then the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit. And we calculated it up and assuming the right number of leap years, I think it's something like about 10 and a half years. And so was, well, what, what about it then? Would, would you do that? So for various reasons, I said, I, I think there's potentially some value in that as a Christian uh, and as a preacher. So uh, we, we tried to set up a scheme uh, and we began reading through those sermons at a rate of one a day. And we, we set up a, a Twitter account, uh, now an X account, uh, so that we'd be able to try and help people along with that. Uh, and about that time, uh, the guys at Media Gratii said, well, first of all, we're interested in this kind of material. And secondly, what are you going to do for the people who can't read through Spurgeon at the rate of one sermon a day? Because that's quite a commitment. So what we said was, okay, this is phase two or phase three or four, depending on how many steps back you go. Let's take one sermon a week out of whatever seven we're reading, typically seven, and let's make that our featured sermon and try and get a representative sample of Spurgeon's sermonic output so that people who aren't in a position to read one every day might be able to read one every week. And then the suggestion was, well, why don't we do a podcast about that? And then another friend came in and said, well, why don't we collect those sermons that are featured for a given year into a book. And the first volume of that, the one that you, you know, here's uh, my, my original proof copy, uh, From the Heart of Spurgeon. So these are the eight featured sermons from the first volume of the New Park Street pulpit. So really it's that sort of ongoing refinement in an attempt to make the most of the investment. So with Mr. Spurgeon, why choose him 
and uh, you know, and obviously we don't idolize a man. Why is why do you find him so helpful that you would be willing to invest that much time in his sermons? I think fundamentally for me, from the first time I really came across him, especially as a preacher, I was struck by a man who knows adores and proclaims God as he's made known in Jesus Christ. And when you come across men and women like that from across the ages, and especially preachers of the gospel, these men who are captured and enraptured by Jesus Christ, whatever may be the, the circumstantial quirks, the, the cultural distinctives that they have, even some of the things in which we might actually say that's not where I would go and that's not what I would say, those fundamental eternal gospel realities, that's the bedrock. And even the distance in space and time can be a real help to us because it actually engages our minds. It helps us to think, what, what is he saying of enduring value? So for me, it's Spurgeon, the preacher of Christ, uh, and and that giftedness has been recognized really in his own time and uh, really since then. Here is a man who not only knows Christ, but knows how to preach Christ. And that to me would be his enduring value. I think it would probably have been in my um, early teens, even before I think maybe age 12, that uh, my grandfather, who was a godly believer. Um, he had been converted later in life and had found out about Spurgeon. So he began to purchase those collections of sermons that some of the, our listeners uh, might be aware of, you know, so 12 sermons on prayer, 12 sermons mm. on evangelism, mm. or 12 yeah. sermons, you know, on holiness. And uh, so those were obviously compiled after Spurgeon's death. Um, and he, he had a lot of those sitting on his uh, bookshelves, and I, I wanted to read the guy that my grandfather was interested in. I, mm. I wasn't a believer, but I, I think the, the most significant thing that I remember from reading some of those sermons in those early years was that uh, I described it this way. Um, if I felt like Spurgeon threw a net over me while he was preaching and was pulling me, uh, particularly my conscience, and it was as if halfway through the sermon, something in John jumped up and sided with Mr. Spurgeon mm. and pointed back at me and said, you know, he's telling the truth. Why are you not moving forward? You know, why have you not embraced Christ or why are you still living for yourself? And I, it was the, it was the first time and, you know, one of the few times that in reading or listening to sermons, I just felt so consistently um, my conscience became a traitor to my selfish self and joined Christ against me. And um, so obviously that was very beneficial. An another benefit that my family has received from Spurgeon is that our older daughter was converted through reading the old Funk and Wagnall's 20-volume set of Spurgeon sermons. Mm. If, you, if, um, if people have seen these, you won't necessarily remember that they were printed by Funk and Wagnall, but you will remember them by the fact that they're falling apart. They're a brown set, hardback, 
and they were um, kind of inexpensively done. So they're always falling apart if you find an old set. Uh, she read through all 20 volumes at about age 12, 13, and she realized that this man is speaking of the God of the Bible. Then she read through the entire set again and was converted. And then she read through part of the set again because she was afraid maybe she deceived herself. But as she read through the set again uh, the third time, she realized, no, um, you know, this is the true gospel. So Jeremy, with so many sermons, um, there are 66 volumes in the main set with uh, the two uh, Park Street Chapel and the Metropolitan Tabernacle. There are 66 big volumes. Uh, how did you choose the eight sermons that you chose for this book? Some of the criteria are a little bit more personal, a little bit more subjective. Some of them would be more objective. There is a deliberate attempt to choose uh, representative sermons over time. So perhaps if I identify some of the key thrusts of Spurgeon's ministry, one of them is going to be direct evangelistic preaching. Uh, and that's you, you've, you've identified the, the immediacy and the directness. So if this is what it feels like reading this sermon at a distance of, what, 200 years, what must it have been like to have this man looking you in the eye, as it were, and speaking to you soul to soul. So sometimes it's we want to represent that direct evangelistic emphasis. And that's very true, especially in his early ministry in London, when he's still gathering a congregation. Then there are, there are other elements or other themes that I think are typically quite prominent. Um, one of the things that I think is reflected both in his preaching and uh, interestingly, in his uh, in the hymn book that they mm. uh, that they eventually produced, is his dependence upon the Holy Spirit. So that would be something you'd want to reflect. There is his absolute insistence on the holiness of a true child of God. That needs to be reflected. There's his sense of the majesty of God. That needs to be reflected. There's his repeated exhortations to God's people to serve Christ with all that is in them. That needs to be reflected. So as, as you read, if you're reading regularly, one a day or, or something like it, those are the things that are going to start popping out. So you're, you're trying when you're choosing representative sermons to reflect those kind of emphases. And sometimes the, the, the shifting emphases as he's facing particular battles or challenges as a pastor in his own society, um, he's, he's very good for, occasion, for example, occasional sermons. If there's something big happening, he will speak to it. So, you, you know, the, so you're trying to get that uh, included and, and properly represented. And sometimes it sometimes feels like there's weeks you've just got an embarrassment of riches. I want to choose all of these. At which point... Um, so I'm I'm marking these sermons as I go. So sometimes I just have to look over. Okay, which, which one is most marked up? <laughs> which one's that one that that speaks to my soul? Um, or sometimes it, it's very. You know, I'm reading one. I'm moved to tears. I my soul is stirred, and I'm thinking, okay, 
this, I hope that if this is useful to me, then either it's already useful to others or I can hopefully make it useful to others by interacting with it in the podcast and then perhaps in due course being able to publish it as well. So there's a, there's an objective desire to to give the representative sample of Spurgeon as a whole, Spurgeon at his best, Spurgeon with his strengths, Spurgeon in context, and, and beyond that, sometimes it's just, hey, this one sings. Let's do this one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think every time I look at, you know, one of those volumes of the uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle series, you know, I, I would throw it open and uh, just look at the titles. And some of them, I, I do find myself drawn to certain types of titles, you know, and particularly, particularly his descriptions of Christ. And you just mm. think, like you said, um, you just think, oh, well, I wish I had another 24 hours uh, because I, I, don't want to, I don't want to leave any of them behind. Um, and I think Spurgeon's Christocentricity mm. uh, is at the heart of why so many people will read him and quote him and, and genuinely appreciate him, not just because he is so, uh, you know, quotable. Uh, he, he's so uh, pithy in his statements. But, you know, why do people who would not necessarily agree with all of Spurgeon's theology, why do they quote him as well? And I think it's because genuine believers from all traditions um, find the common ground of, you know, it, it is their Lord that's being lifted up mm-hmm. and it draws them again and again. And so they, they like to use him. And that's the enduring value because he's preaching the unchanging Christ. Every believer in every age who loves that Jesus is going to pick up on that element of his ministry and say, that's still my savior, and I still delight in him. Yeah. Now, Spurgeon did not just preach. He, he did uh, an array of ministries. He, you mentioned he was just indefatigable in his, in his labors. It's astonishing to read how much he was involved in, uh, especially, as you mentioned, uh, he was a man who suffered from a number of health issues, some of them quite debilitating at times, and his wife suffered greatly, and he uh, devoted, uh, you know, a great deal of time to serving her at that, uh, you know, during that time of life. But there were other books that he wrote. So if you could recommend something uh, on top of his sermons, where would you point people to begin in reading other things that Spurgeon wrote? Yeah, as as you've mentioned, Spurgeon is you know, he's he is he is wearing himself out in the service of Christ on a number of different levels, um, and one of those is is his his writings. So you've got the general output, the weekly sermon that was produced originally by Passmore and Alabaster, who were his publishers. Alongside of that, you've got. Now you've mentioned some of the 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 selections that people had made Spurgeon on mm-hmm. topic X. Um, there were things like that in his own lifetime. So there's a a beautiful collection of the Saint and His Savior. It was quite an early collection. So you've got these or trumpet calls to Christian energy or words to the young. So you've got these little themed selections, which I think are superb. Um, he did one. New Testament commentary on the Gospel of Matthew that is, it's distinctive. I don't know many other commentaries like it. And again, 
it's the commentary of a man who not only knows the scriptures, but knows the Christ of the scriptures, and that just sings off the page. Uh, in terms of Old Testament commentaries, I don't sure if you can even call it a commentary, but the Treasury of David, um, which is this voluminous study in the in the book of the Psalms, uh, sometimes republished, you know, five, six, three volumes. Um, it's it's magnificent, uh, and, and and again, you there are little excerpts on that, like the Golden Alphabet of the Psalms. So he works through Psalm 119 as a devotional study. Uh, he did. Uh, produce an autobiography that was finished off uh, by his wife and by his personal secretary, a, a wonderful godly man by the name of J.W. Harold, I think it was. Um, these are the, uh, and he he does, I mean, he does these little things. That you sort of think that's just kind of a slightly weird Victorian deal. Um, so he's often accused of being a bit of an eccentric He's got a book on eccentric preachers that I think is probably him finding a not very subtle way of saying, yeah, give us a break. Some of us have, you know, have known God's blessing, even though we don't necessarily fit your mold. So he's got quite an array of things like this that, that, that as you mentioned, the big sermon series, the sermon selections along particular themes, some of these biblical treatments uh, some of these interesting historical and biographical pieces, uh, the uh, the autobiography itself, which incidentally uh, a publisher like the Banner of Truth have boiled that down into a more manageable two-volume set, the early years and the full harvest, Spurgeon's Originals, four big volumes. Uh, yeah, so th there's a variety of material along various lines that taking into account what we've said before about the fact that we're not going to pick that up and just be able to uh, to engage with him in terms of 21st century idiom and speech. And so, I mean, even in his own time, Spurgeon's almost deliberately old-fashioned. You know, it, it's, it's not a performance, but he's almost awkwardly harking back to a previous age. And you sort of think, yeah, it's it's still working, but get through that, use that, make that the yeah your, your off ramp as it were to, to to get onto this, and it's still really refreshing. Well, Jeremy, we've we've seen in Spurgeon's sermons an enduring quality. Uh, we've experienced it ourselves, and we you know of course we know so many others who have benefited from him. So surely there are lessons for a minister today that are timeless, you know, that go beyond imitating his style. Um, and so can you point out some of those that you think are most beneficial for the, the man in spiritual leadership? I think some of the particular qualities of Spurgeon as a preacher, which would be of enduring value today, one would be his manifest earnestness yoked with his affectionate concern for his hearers. This is a man, you, you feel his heart. He often actually refers to his tears as he preaches. Uh, not, not every time, but it's communicating again some of that immediacy. This man loves the people he's preaching to. He wants them to be blessed. So he is not playing games. He is by no means performing. He is a preacher 
of God's gospel and a preacher of righteousness. Now, again, that's not just to be mimicked, but it is to be cultivated. I think the second thing is his insistence upon the gospel, about the Christ of the gospel as being at the heart of the whole of Christianity. Uh, He's never diverted from that. Uh, I think, again, that immediacy and that directness, he doesn't talk, uh, he certainly, first of all, he doesn't talk uh, just about true divinity. It, It comes from his heart but neither does he talk around the people in front of him. There is a a directness, both of challenge and appeal and comfort, that I think is quite rare, not least in the... You often, you'll you'll listen to him preach and you'll sort of think, oh, wow, that's just peeling back the layers of my soul. And then he says, now, by way of application, you're going, whoa, that's still to come? Um, So so that depth and, and that profundity... Very practically, he is clear, he is vivid, he is lively. And for boring and disorganized and dull preachers, to read a bit of Spurgeon is is a wonderful and positive corrective. He's a classic three-pointer a lot of the time, but he's not bound to that. He loves illustration. Sometimes a whole sermon is an illustration developed and applied. Um his 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 hermeneutic his, his way of interpreting scripture is is fascinating and stimulating so i think as preachers we read him not to merely ape him not just to mimic him not to try and stand up and uh, reproduce the spurgeonic style that would be insane but to learn from him how we today can preach more more to the glory of god and in the truest and best sense, more effectively to the people who are in front of us. Yeah, I remember reading Tozer, who, uh, you know, in, in the 20th century, who did not have the benefit of, of um, education beyond uh, childhood. And he mentioned in, a, in, a, in a, a series of comments to men who were studying for the ministry that uh, one of the most important languages they could study would be English. Before they worried about their Hebrew and Greek, uh, they might want to become better equipped in English. But when, they, when he was asked, well, how do you learn to preach, you know, uh, like in, in the mechanics of speaking to a group? And he said, read the greatest communicators. We tend to learn by it kind of rubbing off on us. And as you mentioned, Reading Spurgeon, while not mimicking the Victorian style, but the elements that you just mentioned, th- those are timeless. And it's one thing to write down a list and say, well, Jeremy mentioned four things. Well, that's good, but then it, we're not like that. I, I'm not like that. I, I, I want to see someone do it. And then I think, oh, so that's what you meant. And reading Spurgeon is one way of saying, okay, so that's direct. Uh, that's getting behind the armor of the listener for, for love of the listener. Yeah, I think yeah, they, they, one, they sometimes say that some things are better caught than taught. And, right, and I think yeah. there's, there's something infectious in, the, in a righteous and holy sense in Spurgeon's ministry. And reading it, although you don't get all the dimensions of, of watching and listening, the man in full flow, you can at least stop and reflect. Uh, there's a... There's a there's a certain coolness, a detachment that you get. You can start. Why? 
why is this why why is this hitting me like this why why am i able to follow the flow of his arguments how is he doing this that i think is enduringly helpful yes well how can a person get involved in the reading spurgeon program well the probably the primary way is uh, I'd certainly hope that people who are listening to this would want to plug into the podcast, uh, which you can track down at mediagratii.org slash podcasts. And with regard to the Reading Spurgeon scheme, what we've done is every week, if you sign up to the newsletter, you will get both the little introduction to the sermon and you will get the, uh, the sermon itself as a link so that if you don't have immediate access to it or you just want a very simple way, in your inbox, you'll get the introduction, you'll get a link to the sermon, you can just read along. If you want to, you can find us at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter, now known as X, and we'll try most days of most weeks to post a few quotes from the daily sermon so that you can get the flavour of these things and, and work your way along. Um, and I'd hope too, you know, that this book would be of value. And th these are meant to be your tasters. Um, and if there's sufficient interest in this, then God willing, we can start working through the other years. Uh, these are available uh, through Amazon primarily. That's the that's been the way that we've tried to do it at this point. So you can go to most of the main international Amazon sites. You can type in. Uh, from the heart of Spurgeon, you should be able to find this book. And this is your sampler. This this is the thing that you can uh, read before bed at night or using your devotions in the morning uh, and hopefully make the most of that. But uh, the podcast, the Twitter feed or the X feed, the mediagratii.org slash podcasts page, and then this and perhaps other books in due course would be the primary ways to plug in. Well, Jeremy, thanks for joining us. I know you're busy. Jeremy is the pastor at Maiden Bower Baptist Church in Crawley, uh, just south of London, right? Correct, yes. And, um, and it's always good to have Jeremy uh, with us, and hopefully we'll get him back in the States again, preaching in little uh, New Albany, Mississippi. Tell your family we said hello. I will, and thank you to you and to the friends at Media Gratii, to your family and to the church friends there too. Yeah, God bless. God bless. Thank you, John.